Welcome to the Quintessential Being podcast. Here, you'll find conversations with epic souls that offer fresh perspectives, cultivate awareness, and invite acceptance for you to experience wholeness right now. Join me, Nikki O'Brien, as I dive deep with these beautiful beings of light. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Quintessential Being Podcast. I have got the most amazing woman, Dr. Sophia Brock, with me. She is talking to us today about the myths of perfect motherhood. Once I listened to this woman's podcast, I was like, where has she been all my life? Because honestly, the information that she gives you as a mother, as a woman in this world is just nothing short of amazing. So welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Oh, thank you, Nikki. What a lovely introduction. <laughs> thank you so much. I appreciate that. I'm so grateful that you came on. For those of us who don't know you, maybe you can give us a little bit of a background about you and how you landed where you are. I know that you're a sorceress of sociology. So yeah, give us all the details. Yeah, so I completed my PhD in sociology and that was before I became a mum and my PhD research was based in motherhood studies and sociology of personal life. So I've actually had a fascination with motherhood for as long as I can remember really and not so much in the way of, oh, it just must mean you really want to become a mum, but in the way that motherhood is talked about, thought about, mm. conceived, the way that mothers are treated and viewed. And I actually think the assumption and the question of, oh, you're interested in mothers, you therefore must be a mum, is actually really telling around the conceptions of motherhood that we hold. You know, that yeah, it's wow. really interesting because you are a mother or you want to be a mother, right? That says yeah. something. Yeah. And yeah. because you started that, like you've really seen like the whole journey because you started your PhD in motherhood and like before you became a mum. Wow. So you have a really interesting perspective. Totally. I, I wouldn't have even thought of that. So, oh, where do we even start? There's so many directions that I want to go. Maybe as a single mum myself, and I know that you have the same experience, it is, you know, it's a pretty difficult task, I feel. And I feel like in this information age, we really have so much to, yes, we have a lot of technology and a lot of knowledge at our fingertips, but that also is like super confusing and feels like a lot of pressure. So maybe can you speak to that and being a mum in the information age and what you found in your study so far that can really help a mum, you know, I don't know about you, but when I first became a mum, I was like in the depths. Like it was it was hard going, you know? Like trying to manage this new identity is really challenging. Really challenging. Yeah, I hear you. And I think it's important to say that it hasn't always been like this in terms of thinking about the way that we're positioned uh, against particular types of knowledge. So that I think there's two narratives that are dominant. The one is that we need the support. So you learn how to mother. It isn't something that necessarily is innate and instinctive and that comes naturally. You know, it's it is a learned practice, a learned skill, and it's something that we're not designed to do by ourselves. We're designed to mother in context and community with others. And so it's recognising that we need the support and we're not expected to do it all by ourselves. Yet at the same time, the flip side of that narrative is that we can also be convinced that we actually don't have any innate knowing and therefore we need to constantly seek information and advice from others. And so this actually came about in 
if we look historically at the way motherhood was situated around the sort of 1920s 1930s there was a growth in and a really a development in the, a scientific approach to child rearing and parenthood looking at pediatricians and people who were positioned as parenting experts they started to become prominent and there started to become a discourse and a language of how we should be mothering or how we should be parenting and that wasn't always the case previously if you wanted to learn about parenting if you wanted to learn about children and mothering you would go to other mothers you wouldn't go off to parenting experts and so because of that shift which has kind of just intensified as we've had a growth in technology in some ways, yes, it's very helpful and it's certainly not dismissing expertise um, and saying that there aren't incredible benefits to that, of course, but to build in a language and an awareness that that positioning of knowledge also means there are two consequences. One is we have mother blame. So we blame the mother if she doesn't get it right because she should have gone to ask the experts. And the other aspect of that is an invalidation of maternal knowledge and maternal authority. So really dismissing mothers' voices and, and perhaps not even recognising that they are an authority in their own lives and in their own children's lives, which of course yeah. they are. And I think it's really important to speak to that as well, like in their own children's lives, because every child is different and every set of circumstances, every family is really different as well. And that's always constantly changing too. I never actually thought about it like that. I remember in one of your podcast episodes, you talked about the individualistic society that we live in. And that has been such a um, polarity for me, the fact that it does take a village and it has grown me in ways that I couldn't even say, like having to ask for help because it's just not my forte and building those support systems, right? Yeah, but that versus like really we do live in this individualistic society. So can you talk to that a little bit as well? Sure, yeah. So this is why I think mothers feel stuck in many ways because we're stuck between two big competing ideologies. And when I say ideologies, kind of... The things that structure our social understandings of what it means to be a mother, not but not just social and cultural understandings, but they influence policy as well. And the way that our laws are designed, the way um, that would be responded to within the medical system, maternity system, schooling system. And so on the one hand, there's a prioritisation of the individual. So it's all about, you know, individual choice, individual agency, the rhetoric of choice being so important about it's all just about what you individually choose. We we see this through social policy in terms of the emphasis on paid work mm-hmm. as being of value as opposed to unpaid caring work. So it, it manifests in all sorts of ways. But on the one hand, there is this idea around the individual and independence. And again, not necessarily attaching moral reasoning to that, just saying that this is this is a discourse that exists and it has mm-hmm you know, negative impacts and positive ones too. And then on the other hand, though, that when we enter motherhood and when we become a mother, we're entering into, and even when we become pregnant, right, it's not all about the individual. We, we no longer can really conceive of ourselves as just ourselves alone when we are, when we are literally growing another human being. We're thinking of the other. And then when we have a baby, it's the mother baby. You know, we're we're still connected. That baby thinks they're still part of us. And so we enter into a realm that is not just framed around 
interdependence and connection, but it's based in it. That is what it's about. And vulnerability and needing each other, that's part of our human condition. We were all infants, you know, and at any stage, if we are able-bodied, we can acquire a disability and need support. You know, if we enter into, if we're lucky enough to make it to old age, we likely are going to get to a place where we need some help from another. And so it's not just about mothering, it's about care work more broadly. And so this is why we can feel really stuck because on the one hand, we're being told it's all about us, the individual choice, you know, all of that, individualism. And on the other hand, we're within this interdependent relationship and just to add intensity on top of that, we're also sold the myth of perfect motherhood, which is all about being self-sacrificing and erasing the self and our needs in order to serve another. So no wonder, no wonder mothers fight it hard. I know, I feel like you really just perfectly articulated something that took me a long time to figure out. I often say like, it feels like you walk through one door and you can never walk back out because it's like you go from being this independent woman to, yeah, having this beautiful being that is completely dependent on you and while that's simultaneously like you love it to bits and you're like wow this is amazing what an honor it's also fucking terrifying because we're not conditioned to unless you've come from a big family and that's been displayed from you a lot of us in society right and not we're not that's not part of our understanding it's not part of the way that our world works you know and it really like the word loneliness is jumping out to me. Like I felt really lonely in the first few months of my of my mothering journey just because you really understand that that baby wants no one else but you. Like not even my mum or my sister or, you know, could could calm him or, or soothe him the way that I can. And that's, it's, yeah, like just that simultaneousness of like of, of love and honour but also like terrifying. Like how am I going to reconcile this new identity let's talk a little bit more about the myths of perfect motherhood and what you've discovered in like let's name them and then you know what you've discovered how we can I'm thinking like a reckoning like how you can you know kind of toss it out the window (laughs) (laughs) yeah I love that so I think part of what you've articulated there is first recognizing that that these myths exist because I think that in order to call something out and to change the way that it impacts our life, we need to be able to name it. You know, we need to be able to name it and recognise it and also know that it's a construction. It's not just the way that it always has been and the way that it always will be. And I think a part of why the perfect mother myth is so pervasive and it really can get to us is because we're convinced that it's what is best for our children. Mm. And because we, all of us, you know, love our children, we want to be the best mothers that we can be for them. We're kind of duped into believing that in order to be the best mother we can be for them, it requires an erasing of self or it requires yeah. a giving of Yeah, which I can I contest that. And I think their research and literature is really pretty strong in support of contesting that myth of self-sacrifice. But so that, that's a big one that underpins the myth of perfect motherhood is around self-sacrifice and always putting our children's needs before our own. And it's also actually positioning our children's needs and ours as always being in opposition. Mm-hmm. And of course, yeah. sometimes they the realities and practicalities is, yes, yeah. sometimes you have to attend to the baby or the child before yourself and they are in opposition, but it's not always that way. And there are many instances of where 
serving our needs first as mothers is actually part of our job as mothers to serve our children. Yeah. So that's a really strong one. Also around, I mean, there's, you know, I could go on for a long time about this, but to just sort of summarise it succinctly, there's also the myth around your race, your sexuality. So the myth of perfect motherhood and the, the mother who is put on a pedestal in our society is white, she's middle class, she's heterosexual, she is in a long-term relationship if not married. She likely engages in some form of paid work, so she isn't all just a mum, right? So she engages in the paid labour force, but her children always become come before her work. So she's a good employee, but she's also a good mother. And those two concepts are in opposition, again, why so many working mothers can face so many challenges. And the the perfect mum or the good mother, she's someone who not only does all of this, juggles all of this, manages all of this, and <laughs> fits into this unrealistic standard, which she'll sometimes be positioned outside of through no choice of her own. You know, if she has a disability, if her child has a disability, you know, if she if she's not a white middle-class woman, not only does she fit into all of that, but she does it all willingly. She does it effortlessly. She does it with a smile. She does it because she enjoys it. And she's completely lit up, contented, fulfilled by her motherhood. She's and has no needs. <laughs> has no needs. And, but what I think has made its way into this conception somewhat interestingly, I think this is a function of capitalism, is that she also self-cares really well. Oh, so she, yes. And that's like, is that like a new narrative that's come in, right? Like you've got to be all those things, but you've also got to, yeah, self-care and self-love and self-accept and like, yes. Yeah, yeah. And I think, look, there's certainly space for that. I think that it's important conversation and I talk about it as well. But I think we have to be careful and mindful of the ways that we're sold that messaging. Because if we're sold the message that we need to self-care in order to care for others, full stop, and that's where the conversation ends, what that can actually do is just reinforce the myth of self-sacrificial motherhood. Because yeah. your purpose, you are here to serve others. You know, you deserve the self-care for you as well. Yeah. So what have you found, or even through your own journey, has been an antidote to, you know, those, to throwing those myths out the window and, and, and navigating motherhood compassionately for yourself, not just for your child, but for yourself? So I like to talk about it in terms of an empowered practice of mothering. Um, I also talk about, which may sound a little more radical, liberated motherhood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so this this I think it's important to mention here that this isn't work that has all just come from me I'm drawing on maternal mm -hmm. scholars and theorists so there's a whole body of literature on this it's just that it's not well known in public discourse but part of how I've navigated that in my own motherhood is to first recognize that the it is a myth that there is nobody out there who fits this perfect conception of motherhood and that anybody that you have in your mind on a pedestal who you think does doesn't you're just seeing a projection that is also not to say that mothers cannot be fulfilled contented happy you know it's also not to denigrate that either it's to recognize that we are all multi-layered complex human beings we're not just a projection of one image of how it is to live our lives yeah. 
Yeah. So I feel like what you're saying is like we can do motherhood well and we can get a lot of joy from it, but we need to identify the the pillars that make us happy, right, in motherhood and what bring us joy in order for it to like look or feel successful in, you know, for, for want of a better word. Is that is that sort of what you're... Yeah, so I think it's helpful to make a distinction between motherhood and mothering. So when I talk about motherhood as being like the perfect mother myth, as an example, we can be talking about, I describe this in terms of like the fish tank. We're talking about the outer structures, the the things that make up what it means to be a mother that are socially contingent, that historically change according to context, that are changeable, but that we live within. But then the... The difference is in going mothering, that's how practice, that's about the individual, that's the way that you think and that you navigate your life. And so I believe that we can live an empowered practice of mothering. And I actually think that mothering is a path to greater consciousness, awareness, fulfillment. I think that mothering is one of the most powerful vehicles for social change that we have and, and a vehicle for individual and community transformation. So we can be all of that as part of mothering while also saying here is the broader conception of motherhood that we're living within and that's where all of these myths reside. And if we're measuring ourselves up constantly against that external fish tank, that's when we can get stuck and that's when we can lose sight of ourselves. So actually coming back to ourselves and our mothering and recognizing all that stuff is constructed, I think that that's the first step we need to take in order to reclaim our power and our joy as mothers. I love that. Thank you so much for that distinction. I never, I've never connected those dots in that there is a distinction and a difference between motherhood and mothering. Like I love that analogy. That's so helpful. Your last podcast episode, you talked about harmful intrusive thoughts and I never actually was aware of them as a thing like I experienced it I probably still do experience it I was lucky enough that in my mothering journey I remember having just a casual conversation with one of my friends you know and she said to me yeah I can lay there at night time and be like this and this and this is going to happen and sort of you know but then she brings it back and was like oh that's you know it's just that's just my imagination it's fine And so through me having that conversation, I felt like I felt normal in having the thoughts that I had. But yeah, I'm not, I feel like not every woman knows about this. And I think it's so important in your, especially as a new mum, because it happens more often. So can you speak to, yeah, what are harmful intrusive thoughts? How do they work? And how can we find a bit of peace with them? Yeah, sure. Well, this is work from Dr. Caroline Boyd, who is um, who I interviewed for the podcast. And fascinatingly, intrusive and so intrusive and harm thoughts um, in the context of motherhood are thoughts that you have around either harm coming to your baby or you causing your baby harm intentionally. And they are really, really common. And actually, Dr. Boyd says that they're pretty much universal. Um, in terms of having intrusive thoughts around harm coming to your baby. Um, They're thoughts that also dads can have as well, but it's not as common. And that they're quite common in those early months postpartum and they generally lessen as you uh, go on in motherhood. But they certainly can continue and they may be things around, you know, 
probably to just add a trigger warning here before I, I, I mention these scenarios, but, you know, like a, ba- a car coming and hitting the pram when you're walking the pram with the baby or you dropping the baby down the stairs or thoughts like that that enter your mind. And they can be quite unsettling. They can also be quite graphic. And so Dr. Boyd and others recommend that the way that we respond to these is important because if we shift our behaviour in response to those thoughts, it actually gives those thoughts more power. Mm-hmm. So if we think to ourselves, oh, okay, um, I'm having this harm thought about dropping the baby down the stairs, I'm just not going to go down the stairs. I'm going to get someone else to take the baby downstairs. That actually gives those thoughts power. And so a strategy that is recommended to try and process and deal with these is to separate yourself and distance yourself a little from them by even speaking back to them and saying, this is a harm thought. I am not this thought, this is just a thought, it will pass. And recognising that it's normal, it's Mm. common, but that, yeah, that you're definitely not alone if you're experiencing them, even though they're certainly still taboo as part of motherhood. Totally. And there's so many things that we don't um, think about. And that's why I found it so fascinating when you were speaking to it. I was like, wow, this happened to me. And I didn't even, like, I hadn't even been aware of it or named it or or thought that, yeah, it happens to <laughs> almost every mother on the planet. So I just wanted to bring a little bit of awareness to it because it is really frightening sometimes. The things that your imagination can come up with are, you know, <laughs> like Hollywood blockbuster. Yeah, it's really hard and I think the um it's also important to say that I I think that they the frequency of these types of thoughts or the um perhaps unsettled nature of them is exacerbated by isolation and loneliness and Dr Boyd talks about context as being a kind of exacerbating factor and so perhaps it's unsurprising that so many women are are struggling in this way or doing so in silence because it's certainly not part of the good mother myth is it to say that you experience harm thoughts you know so that adds to the sort of shame that can shroud topics like this yeah yeah and maybe we can speak a little bit to some of the shame and guilt that we can feel as mothers because that's something we haven't touched on yet and I feel like it's such a big piece of (laughs) becoming a mother (laughs) in this society in this day and age yeah so can you speak to that a little bit Yeah, so if we go back to what I was talking about earlier in terms of the um, positioning of individualism with the perfect mother myth, so the idea that it's all about the individual and then you're all about being the self-sacrificial mother, yeah, of course, guilt is going to be a consequence of that because, in other words, you're always failing. Like if you are focusing on being there for your child and giving your everything to them and being that mother who just puts their needs before your own all the time, you're inevitably going to be letting down that other ideology of individualism and self and agency. And um, perhaps it's around conceptions of what it means to be a good partner um, or to be a good friend or to be a good employee or however it may look. And so there can be guilt experienced there, like you're failing or you're not good enough. And similarly, guilt experienced in the other way in terms of if you have a life outside of motherhood, if you have desires that do not connect with motherhood, if you enjoy spending time away from your child occasionally, you know, horror, (laughs) if you actually exist outside of serving the needs of your children, then you should feel guilty about that because you're not living up to the myths of what it means to be a good mother. And so guilt is actually seen as almost I think we use humor to try and talk about it like oh that you know mum guilt and it's just part of being a mum to feel the guilt and 
I would suggest that a lot of the guilt that we experience, some of it is functional and I think some of it is part of the relationship between mother and child. But the way that I emphasise it is that a lot of the guilt we feel is because of the motherhood, because of the constructed nature of what we're told it means to be a mother. Um, and that guilt is like our little internal police officer, our little discipliner saying, get back in line, you're not doing a good enough job. It's our way of judging ourselves. And um, it can be a really harmful and draining emotion to sit in, which so many mothers feel constantly as part of their mothering. Yeah. So what's been your personal process to like kick the guilt? Yeah, so I first ask myself, where is this coming from? So if I'm feeling guilty about something or other, I think to myself, all right, just stop and just take a moment here to examine this guilt. Where is it coming from? Are there any shoulds that exist here? Mm. Have I had a comment made to me by somebody that's lingering in the back of my mind and has made its way into my internal voice that it's not actually mine, it's someone else's? Am I comparing myself to another mother? and the way that she is doing things. Um, so in other words, getting clear on your actual values as a mother and how it actually sits for you. Is this something that is your own or is this guilt inherited, adopted from somewhere else? And oftentimes I think that actually that's where it's come from in terms of com coming from somewhere else. It, it's not ours to carry. We don't actually care that much about having the TV on in the afternoon. We just feel guilty because we think that we shouldn't. Totally. And so that's kind of the first step. And then the second is to, if the guilt doesn't shift from that, going, okay, well, what is this guilt here to teach me? How can mm. I use this guilt? I'm not just going to sit in it. I'm not just going to be like, this is just the way it is. I'm just feeling guilty. I'm going to say, all right, it's here to teach me something. Is this guilt here as a little red flag for me? How am I living out of alignment with my values right now? Where is that happening? What can I do to bring in resources, tools, strategies, support, a different way of thinking to actually adjust my behavior and what's going on here and my perspective? Or maybe my values need adjusting. Maybe yeah. actually I've shifted and I've changed and, yeah. and that's perfectly okay and actually expected. Would you find that, like I'm just thinking as you're talking, would you find that your values do shift with like with mothering because because of the different stages of your child as well, right? Like I'm just thinking then like, yeah, wow, like I think that's happened to me where something that was a value when he was a baby has like now sort of shifted, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they continue to shift throughout motherhood in the sense of recognising that we still are mothering when our children grow beyond the age of, yeah. you know, eight. <laughs> like I think so often a lot of the, the discussion and language in parenting spaces online is really focused on those younger years and because they're, they're so intensive. But also, you know, mothering teenage and mothering adult children is, is also, can also be very intensive. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't end. And, uh, <laughs> so, shockingly, I <laughs> might be a bit daunting to, to reveal that fact. <laughs> I often say there's a reason why they do it a year at a time, like because you just let adjust to that period and then you're like, okay, it's like, you know, when they start out, they're just a blob that you can kind of carry around and then they start moving and then you're like, oh, okay, next level. It's like it's, you know, it's perfectly designed by nature, right? It is, yeah. And I think, I mean, I work with a lot of mums who start out very, very tied to attachment parenting. 
I think part of sometimes what we can do in those very early phases of new motherhood is attach ourselves to some way of being as a mother. I'm this type of parent because it helps us give language to our newfound identity and it can help bring us into connection with other mothers as well if we feel like we can find a shared sense of value through a label. But um, I work with a lot of mums and this is, was my experience as well of being quite um, tied to particular values around parenting when our children are babies. But then once they enter the toddler years, things um, shift a little. And also if we go into the paid workforce at any stage, then things shift again. If we have another child, things shift again. And so there is certainly, you know, our context, our relationships are really important determiners of actually how we're going to be mothering and what our values are and what our priorities are as well yeah wow oh I love having this conversation with you you're so interesting maybe before I let you go I just want to talk a little bit about anger because that was a really big thing for me in in mothering through like toddler like you know I was and again shame and guilt would come up because I was having such huge reactions to new behavior or my own reactions or whatever it was and it's really confusing it really it's really hurtful it can be really hard to be compassionate and loving towards yourself and your child so can we unpack that a little bit for people listening yeah sure so So first, I'm just laughing because I just think that every mum that I speak to, and I've supported a lot of mums through anger, and everyone starts off saying the same thing around, oh, "Oh, you know, I'm just so angry and either I don't know why it's so bad, you know, I must be a bad mum, other mums don't get angry like this. And I just sort of like can't help myself but laugh sometimes because we are so all in this together and really anger is such a normal part of mothering it is a normal part of human experience we denigrate anger and i think anger can be really useful but there's a distinction to be made here between the felt emotion and experience of anger and the expression of anger right they're two different things i think we get caught up in judging ourselves around the felt experience of anger where i've spoken to mums and they say because I did a course on anger and I was thinking they would be talking about this distinction and okay different ways to add in circuit breakers and coping strategies to recognize that when we express anger in particular ways it it, it can be really damaging for our children Um, and it can feel like you've just ripped their whole world out from beneath them and those some ruptures there can be really detrimental so it's not just saying, oh, all anger and express your anger however you want, it doesn't matter. (laughs) But a lot of the mums I was speaking to were saying, I'm not even, I'm not feeling guilt around expression of anger. I'm actually feeling guilt around just feeling anger, just feeling it, you know, that I just, I shouldn't even feel it. And And that that comes back to like just being a woman as well, doesn't it? Being a woman and being a mum, like you shouldn't, that's one, that's one emotion you're not allowed to have. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Who Who wants to be the angry woman? You know, that's the thing. We're put into these dichotomies. We should be calm and peaceful and composed and all of that. Like it's all about myths of womanhood as well, isn't it? And also, I mean, we tend to gender anger too. So, you know, anger is a male emotion. Like it's okay for men to get angry and express anger but not for women. And research shows there's no difference. And that actually some research says that women experience anger more frequently than men do. And one thing with anger is that if we, if we're feeling it, and this is really with any emotion, I guess, is that if we're feeling it rise to the surface and we just go, 
oh, not allowed here, push it down, get rid of it, judge ourselves, shame ourselves, guilt ourselves. What that does is it just like keeps it right here below the surface and then it'll just go bam when we can't control it and it'll just explode in front of us and onto our children. And so I think that actually as a first step, if if anyone who is listening is experiencing this or grappling with this is to recognise that it is okay to feel anger. It is normal to feel anger at at times Mm -hmm. and that repressing it and shoving it down will only likely intensify it. So finding finding support, finding healthy ways to express anger, to channel anger. I see lots of anger in mothers who were previously quite creative but have had all of their creative Mm -hmm. outlets stifled. And, and anger is a great reminder of where you need to set your boundaries. You know, yeah. so we're just expected to go, yeah, just expand, hold everything, be there for everyone. And no wonder we're angry. It's telling yeah. us, hey, where are your boundaries here? That's something that, I, I mean, I learned this, I don't know about you, but my process is very like, sometimes I'll learn something logically and then literally like six months, a year later, I like, it finally dropped into my body and I like embody it. And it recently came up for me. I was like, why am I angry? I was like, oh, my boundaries have been violated and I've not stuck to them. And that's so true. I'm so glad that you, yeah, one said that and made that distinction between feeling angry because I I wish I had been told that when I was, you know, in the depths of it because it was, it's really confronting and it's because it happens so often and like you said, and we push it down because we're like, we shouldn't be feeling like this because we're a perfect mom. <laughs> and then it exacerbates it and it keeps coming back and it's a really... It's a really tricky cycle and it's such a, yeah, oh, I just want to like hold all the mums. <laughs> I know, it's really hard. And I think that actually if we didn't, I would be surprised at any mother who's living within modern Western motherhood of the perfect mother myth who didn't feel angry about it. I mean, I, I think we should feel angry about it. I think that actually we probably need a lot more women to experience anger. Because anger is also, uh, it's it leads to really decisive actions, and it can lead. It can be very motivating. Yeah. Yeah, clean anger can definitely be like a game changer. It can change the change the paradigm. Change the yeah, definitely. Yeah. Wow. Oh, I have adored talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you want to that you want to share with the audience before before we close out? Yeah, just thank you for having me, Nikki. I've really enjoyed the conversation. And to, yeah, just let anyone who is listening know and remind them, really, because I think on some level we do have a knowing about this, but it's just kind of covered up by a whole bunch of stuff that what you're doing is important, you know, and that mothering is really important work, even though it's undervalued work and it's perhaps not recognised, that it's important work and what you're doing is valuable and your worth and your value, though, doesn't depend on what you do. You know, you, you already are by virtue of just being here. So yeah. that message with you. Thank you for that beautiful parting message and that, yeah, it is like a 24-7 job and it's not valued in, um, as much as it should be in the society. So you are you are shaping the next generation. Where can we find you if we want to follow, if you want to listen to your podcast, if we want to look at your courses, please let us know where all your digital hangouts are. Sure, yeah. So my podcast is the Good Enough Mother podcast. Find that on wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
And I'm on social media on Facebook, Dr. Sophie Brock, and on Instagram, the same Dr. Sophie Brock. Um, my website, also drsophiebrock.com. I have on there options for online courses. I'm doing a practitioner training at the moment and I work with women one-on-one -on -one as well. So if anyone feels called to, then please get in touch. Thank you so much for your time, for your energy, for your incredible learnings and for your studies and your work in the world. It is, has been an honour to chat with you. Thank you, Nikki. As always, thanks so much for listening today. And if anything here landed in your soul feels, please share with the people that you love because the more hearts and ears this gets into, the better. If you want more conversation like this, then head over to the Quintessential Being by Nikki Facebook or Instagram page. I would love to see you there. Till next time, big love. <laughs>